Hmm. Well, like John said during the questions and answers a few minutes ago, it's really lovely to see all of your faces, some of them well known to us, some of you new, some of you exceedingly far away, and maybe not listening actually at this point because it's the middle of the night in some of these places. And some of you, of course, right there in the Bay Area. So I'm so happy that you are here with us and that we can move forward with this very interesting experiment that we're having. So often on retreats, somewhere along the line, quite frequently at the beginning, I think, we end up telling the story of the Buddha. It's a little bit like here we are, the family is gathered and someone says to grandma, tell us the story about when, you know, when something. And so we tell it again and we talk about this amazing person who lived 2,600 years ago and who had a vision that is still reverberating all of this time later. I mean, who would have thought? 2,600 years, and here we are online, still talking about the Buddha. Pretty amazing. And we remember the story that um, when he began to move towards his awakening, he had a memory. And he remembered being a little boy, and he was watching his father doing the plowing and the garden. And one of the things, one of the pieces that I've always loved is that he remembered this as a moment of just complete, utter presence. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, the mind, nothing else, just really fully present to what was happening. But there's also a version of this story, which really seems appropriate to remember today, is that one of the things he noticed was that in the plowing, the plow was injuring and chopping up any number of earthworms. And that his heart was just broken open by the plight of these poor worms. And then, of course, the other piece of the story, which also seems useful, and we'll get to a bit in this talk, is that later on, he had the encounter with the heavenly messengers, with someone who was sick and someone who was old and someone who was dead. He was utterly astounded. He did not have any idea that this could happen to people. And then he had an encounter with a monk, maybe a monk who lived in a hermitage, just like all of you are now. So all of this led to the, his, the opening of his heart, his seeking awakening, and the way in which he taught, really wanting uh, all beings to be happy and really holding all beings in compassion. So I found, as I was thinking about this talk, that I could, you know, these days, those earthworms, I feel a little that way myself, you know, like we're being plowed under and chopped up. And um, we got a bunch of crazy people, you know, driving the plows around in this world. And it's not good, you know, there's a lot of suffering and so many people are ill with this virus. So many people are ill and many of them, so many of them are dying and so many others 
all those astounding people who are on the front lines, the nurses and the doctors and the healthcare workers. The more I read about them and hear about them, I am just amazed, utterly, utterly amazed. So <coughs> the heavenly messengers are everywhere. We are not without those heavenly messengers. And it's very hard, I think, right now to hold them as heavenly messengers, you know, like, oh, what's heavenly about all this sickness and all this dying and, you know, all of this awareness. One of the things I'm very aware of is if I end up in one of those crowded hospital wards and it's a question of triage, I'm toast, you know, I'm old enough. And nobody's going to come and say, well, she's a spirit rock teacher, take care of her. The fact is, I'm old enough and off I would go. So the messengers are right there. And we bring this suffering into the retreat with us. You cannot arrive at this retreat and set that aside for the whole week. And we've started to have some conversations with you, a few just now in the Q&A time and a few yesterday when we had the opening groups. Um, and I love these conversations. It's one of my favorite parts of retreat teaching is the chance to sit down and hear from you and hear what's going on. Because I will confess that often before that happens, you're out there, you're a bunch of faces. I'm sure you don't like me. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And I'm sure that when we have a chance to talk, you won't have anything that you want to ask me. And of course, what happens is we meet and, I don't know, it turns into this kind of kindness, compassion, love fest. It's all very good. And we connect. And we hear each other's confusion and lostness and where we kind of feel like we are being plowed over and chopped up, all of us. So my heart opens, just as your hearts open. And we, that sense that we're all in this together. We're all in this together in the struggle with the outer world. And then particularly this week on retreat, the struggle with the inner world. So you've had a day of practice. And I imagine there have been a few difficulties. Usually there are, even though you've done lots and lots of retreats. A few of you may have had what I always call the honeymoon day, when the first day just goes so easily and so smoothly and you're so blissfully happy to be on retreat. But just wait till tomorrow. So listen up to everything else I have to say. And so usually there's a lot of restlessness and sleepiness and there's a lot of wanting things to be a little bit different than they are. And in the retreat world, sometimes that adds up to, well, I'd really like a better way to sit. I'd like a better cushion. I'd like a better chair. I'd like a bigger computer screen. I'd like a better internet bandwidth, whatever. We have a little bit different wants on this retreat. And you may have some of the other, the not wanting of the aversion, not liking it, not being happy with, with um, the setup. And so this all tends to come in early on in the retreat, lots and lots of difficulty. And of course, the other thing that comes along with all of that is your stuff. I always loved it, Jack Cornfield would say at retreats, he'd say, you think you've come to the retreat, you know, but you've really come to the garbage dump. 
And I carry that one around with me every time I go on retreat because it's that way, isn't it? Our stuff comes to the retreat with us. One of my teachers, teacher friends said recently at a retreat, I was working on with him, he said, there are two groups of people. There are the people who have issues and the people who are dead. And so, you know, here we all are, since I don't think any of us are dead, then we're all in the group who have issues. So part of what to bring to that is to bring a kind of a relaxed awareness of it's tough. We have issues, we're suffering. What we're doing is hard. Now this is not an easy practice, you know? So the classical list, which I'm not gonna go into too much tonight, is the list of the hindrances of desire and aversion and then restlessness and what is sometimes called sloth and torpor or sleepiness and doubt. And the most important thing is to go, yeah, mm -hmm. this is how it is. I have these difficulties in my practice. It's here again, because those of you who've sat a gazillion retreats don't get off that hook. You know, you might think this is gonna be the retreat with no hindrances but it's extraordinarily unlikely that that would happen. And the most important thing is to name it, almost to, almost to welcome it, like, oh, here you are. Here you are, desire, and here you are, aversion. You know, let's, let's take a look. Let's find out what that's like. Or as my friend Ajahn Sumedho would say, he would say, oh, well, this is what desire is like. Let's find out. Or this is what fear is like, or this is what restlessness is like, and to really let yourself be with it. And there are things that you can do to counter them. You can do metta practice if you have lots of desire. You can, um, no, sorry, other way around. You can do metta practice for lots of aversion. You can think about your own impermanence with desire, everything, and the impermanence of everything. Restlessness, you can try to concentrate a little harder. That's pretty uncomfortable, but it works. Uh, Sloth and Torpor Gill mentioned that a little bit today in the instructions. You remember he said about sitting with your eyes open and you're, you're at home, so you don't have any embarrassment at all about what you do for sleepiness. You can stand up, you can open your eyes. You probably could even move around a little bit mindfully and then settle back into your practice. And then um, with doubt, you're doing exactly what you should be doing, being with teachers and spiritual friends um, and using that to support your practice. I think it's especially important to touch again on that place where our stuff comes up. Because so often, you know, we come to retreat and, hmm, we don't realize what we haven't been looking at. And sometimes it's fairly recent. Sometimes it's stuff from your most recent life, you know, some relationship that's being tricky or something at work. Sometimes it's old, something you've completely forgotten about, and there it is again. And it can be frightening and it can be difficult. And especially it's frightening and difficult if you're expected to just push on through it. In which case you're kind of doing the same thing that happened to those worms. You know, you're plowing right through 
and it's not supporting you, it's hurting you. And so the art is to welcome it and to go, oh, hmm, here you are. You know, Vipassana, Vipassana is both a wisdom practice and insight practice, but it's also a purification practice. So what that means is this is part of the deal. Your stuff is going to come up. It's part of the purification process that we all go through. So does it work? You know, does this practice work? Does it do what we want it to do? The Buddha's vision, as I said at the beginning, it's been strong for 2,600 years. Um, Gil and John and I all started years and years and years ago together. And um, we haven't stopped. So I think, you know, and there's people who have been doing it even longer. So I think it has some reputation for actually being helpful. And actually just this morning, I was teaching my class here in Volcano. And one of my students said, I don't know how I would get through this time if I didn't have my practice. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say that. Many, 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 many times, not just for the current situation. So there is something about this practice that op opens the heart, that purifies our being, that allows insight to arise, that does work, that does serve us. So I've gotten kind of interested and well, how do, we, how do we learn to trust the practice? How do we trust it to carry us through at a time like this? And um, one of the lists that I'm very, very fond of, and I teach on it a lot, is a list that's called the five faculties sometimes. It's also called the five strengths. So it's like two lists in one, which is handy if you're memorizing a lot of lists. And so these are things, the five faculties, these are like five tools. And they're things you can use to strengthen your practice. And then there are also aspects of what a really strong practice looks like. And these are conviction, sometimes also called faith, and energy and mindfulness itself, and concentration and wisdom. So conviction is the one that I think of most when I think of trust. And the word in Pali is sada, S-A-D-D-H-A. And as I said, it's sometimes called, translated as faith, its actual uh, meaning means to place the heart upon, which is a meaning that I quite like. Um, and conviction, I think works better for a lot of us now because um, faith sometimes has some difficult connotations depending a little bit on how you were raised and in what religious tradition. And as I said, I'm also appreciating that sense of trust. How do I trust that this is gonna work? So the Buddha, the Buddha was very realistic. He also had a lot of really good stories. And he knew that you don't just get convinced. You don't just suddenly know that something is true. You're not, you don't utterly have complete faith. And so he gave a lovely metaphor for the development of faith, which is, was the metaphor of searching for an elephant in the jungle. Now, 
in Asia, elephants are really, really useful. And the farmers use them to haul all kinds of things and do all kinds of work. And having a really good, strong bull elephant was an excellent thing to have if you were a farmer then. And so you keep an eye out for a possible new elephant, right? And you begin to wonder if there might be an elephant in that jungle over there. You know, maybe there might be an elephant there. And maybe, maybe you see a footprint, a really big footprint, and you think, aha, it's an elephant in the jungle. I get really excited. So we know this place, don't we? You know, we've all, you know, you meet somebody at a party and you exchange a few words and you are totally in love. You've utterly met the person who is for you and you know it now, right? You've seen a footprint. Or maybe you met a Dharma teacher. You heard a tape or read a book. And you went, oh, this is the teacher for me. I know this person is going to bring me to full awakening. Or maybe you go to the animal shelter, you might hear them right now, and um, you see an adorable dog, and you go, oh, this is the dog for me, I know it. So we sense the possibility, but it's not enough, is it, right? So sometimes this person is not the love of your life. You find it out sooner or later, sooner we hope. Or sometimes the teacher not only is the wrong teacher, but actually is not a good teacher for you. Some teachers are not very well behaved. Or the pet, you know, you bring them home and they chew everything up and they poop on the rug and you're not so sure that this is what you want either. So the texts say, well, you know, that big footprint may be a big elephant, but it might also be a dwarf elephant with really big feet. And it's sort of leading you on. But then, of course, sometimes things work out and you stay connected and you have trust and you're more convinced. And the Buddha begins, says at that point that your conviction is verified. Your faith is verified. You begin to see that it's true. So you set more retreats with the same teacher. You and your partner settle in for a long-term committed relationship. And um, the dog learns to be better behaved. So here we are. And we know that we're sharing a lot of pain, all of us and the pain of the world and the pain that each of us has individually, aging, illness, injury, fear of death. And we also know that the Buddha taught a lot about impermanence. So how, given this incredible struggle and impermanence, how do we, how do we trust it? So for me, in the last couple of years, I ended up having three surgeries for cancer, two for breast cancer and one for a melanoma. And I can tell you, I was really, really scared, especially when I first found out. And I really had to look at, well, maybe it's my time, you know? Maybe it's my time to die sooner rather than later. I had this agenda about living 
well into my 90s. It's getting higher and higher every year. But, you know, it's my agenda. And as it turns out, the outcomes were all excellent, and I'm fine, and I didn't require very much treatment at all. But at my age, which is 78, the handwriting is on the wall. Now, I know that at some point it will be my turn. I might be in a triage situation, and they might say, no, you know, at 78, we're not going to do our best to save her. So it brings this question right into our face. What do we trust? What do we trust? You know, the virus is a teacher. It's a real teacher. Many people have been saying that. And it challenges each one of us with the possibility of our own death. So I've had to ask myself, do I really trust these teachings? Do I trust them to carry me all the way? Do I trust this practice that I've been doing for all my life, really, this particular kind of practice for about 35 years? Do I trust the mystery of what it is to be embodied in space and time? Because if I trust it, if I trust this embodiment thing, then it's life and death. Really should all be one word, life and death. We tend to forget about the and death part, you know? So how do I go into that process whenever it comes, whether it's next week or next year or 15 years from now, you know? Can I, can I go into that with consciousness and with my heart open, present to the last conscious breath anyway? Sometimes I say yes. I'm happy to report that. And sometimes I'm not so sure. You know, sometimes I go, oh, I don't know whether I can walk through all of that. But I'm not there yet. So we experiment with trust. You, know, you can experiment with this is great. You're here at this retreat. Can, you know, how much can you trust your practice to carry you through even the difficulties of, the re, of this retreat? You all have some trust because you wouldn't be sitting there if you didn't. You trusted enough. You trusted enough, some of you, to sign up for the retreat when it was actually going to be at Spirit Rock. Then you trusted to shift when we changed it. Some of you, I think, have signed on since that time, and you were willing to trust that somehow this process could be helpful. It's a lot of trust, actually, and we are appreciating it very much. So you've seen the footprint of the elephant. You've seen some additional signs. You're working your way through the jungle, you know, and of course there are moments when the bushes part, ta-da, and there it is. The big bull elephant. Aha. You knew there was an elephant. You knew this was something that would help you. So I think this is where the second of these faculties or tools come in. That's the one of energy and effort. And it's, it's a really important one, and maybe especially on, in the retreat world, because this is a chance really to experiment with your energy. And it takes a lot of, of effort. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of intention to do that. If you get too relaxed, which is easy to happen when you're at home, 
I know this one, actually. I had to play with it quite a bit myself when I was doing home retreats. And it can, you can slide over. Nobody's watching you. Nobody knows if you get up and leave the hall. Nobody knows if you wiggle too much, if you do this, if you do that, if you do the other thing. And all of a sudden, your retreat kind of begins to fall apart. That's not so helpful. Or you can decide, by God, this is the time I am going to really get fully enlightened and I'm going to do it before the end of the retreat. And you get really into striving and that doesn't work so well either. As is often true, the Buddha's teaching about the middle way really applies here. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. The Goldilocks solution. You know, it's the solution to so many things. So finding exactly the right amount of energy. Sometimes you push it up a little, and sometimes you relax a little. And that can shift even within a day of practice. So the images, the image that the Buddha gave is one of a lute, which is a stringed instrument. And you've all watched people who play stringed instruments. You know, they're forever tuning their instrument to get it just right, a little tighter, a little looser. I often think of also of riding a bicycle. You know, you have to pedal really, really, really hard to get uphill. And then maybe you get to coast going downhill. But if you try to coast going uphill, it doesn't work. And of course, if you pedal really, really hard going downhill, sometimes you fall off. So getting it just right with your energy. And I really invite you to experiment a little and to kind of suss out each day. What do I need? Do I need a little more? Or do I need to soften and rest a little bit? Mindfulness is the center of the center tool of all of these tools. I think of it as sort of the umbrella tool. And I'll say some more about that later. It's on so many of the Buddhist lists. You know, if, you're, if ever, anybody ever asks you about, well, do you know what's on this list or that list? It's a really good guess to say that mindfulness is because it usually is. And it's the basic training and it's the foundation of our practices where we learn how to be present. We have to be present in order for things to work. This is not something you get to do long distance. You know, you have to be present. Jack, Jack again used to talk about a, a sign from Vegas that said, you must be present to win. Well, that comes back to me a lot when I think about presence. So being really present with just what is. This is the way the breath is. This is the way my aversion is. I hate this. This is the way aversion is. This is the way wanting is. This is the way sleepiness is. This is the way walking is. This is the way hearing is. One moment after another. It's, a, it's a, actually a real act of intimacy with all being. You are being intimate with your moment-to-moment -moment experience. You are being intimate with yourself. One teacher described it as an intention so persevering that it becomes a kind of love. <coughs> and so often, we aren't that present, aren't we? We're just a little bit distant. We're a little bit distant from each other. We're a little bit distant from our surroundings, and we're a little bit distant from ourselves. You know, it's like we're always flying over the terrain in an airplane instead of actually walking it step by step. So the retreat is an invitation to walk it step by step by step. 
And that mindfulness, mindfulness notices, it attends, it is present, it is not asleep, it is not in denial. It's in the very present moment with what is difficult and also with that which is lovely. So mindfulness sees what is there. It also sees that everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. It sees the coming and going of all our experience. So this mindfulness then, in turn, is really supported by your ability to concentrate. So we have to be able to focus in order to be really present. And concentration is a lot about focus. So we started this last night when we started with the breath. You know, staying with the breath, returning to the breath, bringing ourselves back when we wander off, and developing slowly, slowly, slowly the ability to stay here. And when we do that, that calms and settles the mind-body-heart complex. If you're ever stuck in a situation that's really scary, hospitals, freeway, back if the day comes when we're on the freeway again, and things get really tense, bringing your awareness to the breath can be a way to settle even there. So we practice it here so that it's a handy tool for other parts of our lives. And interestingly enough, that ability to focus, that ability to concentrate, also tends to be um, to bring in itself a certain kind of joy and happiness, which is great because that then supports further concentration. It's much easier to concentrate when you're happy than when you're grumpy and irritated. And it supports our ability, concentration supports our ability to go directly into our practice, to really penetrate what's happening. What exactly is the nature of the sadness I'm feeling? What exactly is a breath? And to really see if you go focus more and more, can you experience it more deeply? And it's a training. It takes lots and lots of practice to do this. So then this all leads to the last thing, which is the faculty of wisdom or discernment. So this is where the element of insight comes in. So just as I said with trust, you already have some. You already have insight. Some of you probably have lots of insight. You know? And you're wise enough to be here. You're wise enough to come back if you've come back for yet another retreat. You're wise enough to know that practice just might be a very good idea in this time. And so as we practice, then insights arise, different insights, and they're all different kinds. Sometimes they're really simple. Oh, when I sit this way with my spine erect, I'm more present. Wow, that's useful. When I occasionally sit with my eyes open, I'm more awake. Or sometimes they're a little more complex, some awareness of, about something that's going on in your life, some psychological piece perhaps about a relationship or about who you are. And sometimes they are very, very deep, very important insights 
about the nature, the very nature of our existence. So we begin to see, for example, that every time you get attached to something being a particular way, you're going to suffer. It's just how it is. It's not even pejorative. It doesn't mean you're bad to be attached. It just means suffering is going to go with that attachment. It does. And of course, the places where it's possible to let go, good idea, let go, and then you suffer less. Or we begin to see that, as I said a minute ago, everything is arising and passing constantly. And we really begin to see deeply into the impermanence of all things. And we see that every time, every time that you make I or me or mine solid and the middle of everything, it isn't going to do good things. You create difficulty for yourself and usually you create difficulty for other people. And when we let go of that, that solidity and that I, me, mind place and really allow ourselves to understand how interconnected we are, then there's less suffering. Amazing, huh? Amazing. So it's, that's a really important one, you know, that place where we fill ourselves up with me. Angelus Silesius, who was a great Christian mystic, wrote, he said, God whose love and joy are everywhere can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. So we take that in, translate it if you need to, to some other idiom, but God whose love and joy are everywhere can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. So one last thing to say is that these faculties, these five faculties, sort of balance each other out. So as we noticed at the beginning, faith, which can be so juicy and so exciting and just yummy, but of course it can be a little rash and not so careful. And wisdom, on the other hand, can be really dry and really heady, and that's not so good either. So if you have both, then the faith part can balance out the wisdom and the wisdom part balances out the faith. And again, you end up in the middle. And of course, effort, you know, where it's either striving or laziness and it's really hard to balance can be really supported by concentration, which brings an element of stillness to it. And mindfulness is the overseer. So you can use these on this retreat. A good question is, what do you need? What do you need? Do you need more faith? Do you need more wisdom? Do you need to focus a little on effort? Do you need more concentration? Do you need, maybe to begin with, that seems to be where we're starting, to strengthen your mindfulness? So with these strengths, with these tools, then we can encounter the suffering of the world and our own suffering, our aging and sickness and death. And we can use them to develop the mind that is filled with trust, that has the right energy for each task, that is present to what is, that can focus as needed, and that sees deeply into the mysterious nature of all things. And it's a mind then that knows that whatever happens, 
we too are part of that mystery. You already have what you need. You already have the tools. You simply have to be still enough and present enough to know what is there. Or as one Tibetan teacher said, don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or undo, nothing to force, nothing to want. So thank you very much for your presence and your practice. Let's breathe together just a minute um, before we have whatever it is that comes next, a break before a sitting. So let's just sit. So thank you again. I believe you have um, a bit of a break. So some walking or some stretching. And then at 4.45, there is the closing community sit with Metta Practice. So thank you again. Enjoy your evening. The evening reflection is posted for you for your use later on in your own practice. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.